Okay, hello, and welcome to another episode of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast family. Today's guest is somebody I've literally known since he was in high school and since I was just fresh out of it. We've been in the crowd staring at the same stages. We've been vocalists on the same stages. We've played with many of the same musicians. We've also wandered randomly into the desert to gamble and stay in hotels we couldn't really afford. We've basically gone back years and years and years. Interestingly enough, though, we're interviewing him today largely about Trust Records, which you hear me mention at the beginning of every podcast. Trust is a fascinating entity to me and something I respect and want to learn as much as I can about today, but there's also a little background to it and a journey in getting there that I'm hoping to pick Joe's mind about with his say-so. So anyway, Joe Nelson, thank you for doing this. Gabe, thanks for having me, Dan. Um, stoked to be doing this with you. I, I trip out sometimes how life comes full circle and like listen to your intro and how, yeah, we've known each other since I was in high school and had some separation, not because of any malice or anything, just because of life and distance. And then here we are again, talking about punk rock and back where we started from, <laughs> in a way, you right. know? So it's funny. We've spent time together in the same VFW halls. We've slept overnight at the Anthrax in Connecticut in a snowstorm. We've been in the DIY spaces about as DIY as you can possibly get, right? But there's a whole period when I'm living in the 90s, when you are learning to pay your own bills and become a grown up and everything else, where you remain much closer to music or music on a broader level than I did. And I know almost nothing about it. So let's imagine we, 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 we exit the early 90s in pretty close contact. Yeah. Cover the years from there until, you know, until we sort of started the circle back. I mean, yeah, like just backing up a little further, obviously, hardcore and this music we're you know, talking about that brought us together when we were kids. And then I started touring with bands like Quicksand and obviously just bounced around doing college and trying to do life and stuff. I got married. And when I got, I got married in 2000, moved back to Chicago and started working for Victory Records. And that was a trip <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, I'm not going to go sling some dirt at our buddy, Tony Brummel, on your podcast, but people know, people who want to know, know that that's a tough dude to work for. It was a tough time, but it was also kind of exciting because when I worked there, which is like 2001-ish, we were signing Thursday and taking back Sunday and uh, Trey who just signed there. The, the label was happening and Tony, for all his faults, uh, is brilliant in a lot of ways. And I learned things about his, his marketing strategies and, th and things there. And But I also got it like my... Uh, Case kind of in music reignited, you know, kind of my love for it because I hadn't been really part of it in a minute. And then I went through a divorce and I was in a weird spot. It was, I was about 31 and a half years old. And I reached out to Walter Schreifels, uh, who was in the band Rivals Schools at the time, and asked if there's any way I could go be in Europe as a roadie or whatever. And they said, look, we have no money. We won't pay you, but we'll pay your expenses. And you can just be Sam Sigler's drum tech, which if you ever have Sam on your podcast, I was not the greatest drum tech. <laughs> <laughs> and Sammy's a very, very intense, accurate professional drummer. So having his buddy not be a great drum tech is a story. It was funny. But the point is we go on this great tour uh, all summer long playing with, you know, we're rekindling our friendships with no doubt and Green Day and Foo Fighters are playing and David Bowie was a headliner many nights. Oasis was a headliner many nights. And just this amazing time about three and a half or two and a half months with these dudes. And 
when I came back, uh, I started driving. Mean, I started driving. This is where the story is going, and you'll get it. But I, I came back as a main experience, and then I'm back in Orange County, California. I'm 32 years old. I'm living with my mom in Fountain Valley, which is a very humbling experience. And I'm trying to figure out my life because it's like, okay, man, I just had this great thing with music again. I really would like to get back in music, but how do you do it? Uh, in the meantime, Spike Xavier of Mind Over Four and Brad X's brother, he was a friend and asked if I wanted to work in a warehouse driving a forklift with him and Christian Jacobs from the Aquabats, who I did not know. <laughs> yeah, that's just it. Here's where the journey goes. Mm -hmm. We have this night shift from 8 p.m. till 6 in the morning driving forklifts. And me and Christian kindled this great friendship through it. And just have the, and it's amazing time. And Spike's, if anyone knows, Spike is a brilliant person and the, one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. So we just have the best time. Anyway, this comes back around because the manager of rival schools was a guy named Ted Gardner, who I became friends with on that tour. He happens to reach out to me at the same time and go, hey, I hear you're looking for a, war, so for a job through Walter and Sam. Like, you want to come work with me and manage bands? And I go, I don't have any bands to manage, but it sounds great. And at the same time, Christian from the Aquabats goes, why don't you manage our band? And I'm like, all right, it must, meant to, you know, must be meant to be. So I started managing the Aquabats and we were managing Inaway and a bunch of bands a couple of years. Uh, and then through that, I started working in merchandise. And then, the, and, the, and when the managing thing kind of fell apart. Like it just wasn't, it was great, but like the Aquabats didn't need a manager at that point. So when they let me loose, I, I couldn't make a living just managing in a way in this band Briartone. So I started working in merchandise with Spike at his company called, I think it was called merch.com then. It was Rob Dubar, Bill Fold, Bill Hardy, Spike, Bill Fold and Bill Hardy. Well, Bill Fold's the guy who went on and is working at Coachella. So all these friendships are built there. We're in this merch thing. And then for the next 20 years, I build this music merchandising career from working with those guys in the warehouse, building a warehouse to becoming uh, like one of the main biz dev guys in the biz and signing like Leon Bridges and run the jewels and Fanagram and the offspring and, you know, working with Beyonce. And so just got this real high level. And that's how I got, that was my path before trust records. Well, I've never really known or understood any of that. And that's probably why I've remained comfortable around you. Um, <laughs> oh, no, all I'm saying yeah. is it's, it's remarkable. It's remar remarkable from whence really broad, networking can spring because i mean i know i know a handful of the people you mentioned there right in a, to in a totally outdated context where perhaps my take on them was much more judgmental than it would be now you seem to have had the foresight to always have always been open to new people and new things and it seems to be serving you well yeah of course i think so i mean i think and i think that's the why we come to trust records because through if you're doing anything like biz dev is basically you know it's a and r but in the merch thing you're basically mm -hmm. signing bands all those contacts paid off. You know, I worked with Coachella for years on their merchandise. I worked, you know, the Run the Jewels thing. I mean, this is a great story. Just sidebarring you, Run the Jewels was a band everyone wanted to sign. And, and I got in a room with uh, Amici, who is LP's manager. They have two managers, Killer Mike and LP. And, and like, I knew everyone was trying to get them. We start talking. This dude's from Michigan and goes... I, he asked me what we were, we were putting together this deal. I said, look, man, I kind of model myself after Ian McKay and Discord Records, like how I try to be with these deals. And he just said, what? And then and I go, yeah. And he goes, I'm from Michigan. He's like, you know who negative approach is, right? And I'm like, yes, of course. And then we have this deep dive, hour-long conversation in the room about hardcore. And then when it's over, my company's like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Go, oh, we got the deal. Like <laughs> slam dunk, man. But that's just all those things. Everything kind of connects. And like the point of that story is like networking 
that's where it leads you because I had like a, a, you know, I could reach back and talk about things honestly and, you know, and talk about it with wisdom and experience. That's not bullshit that a guy like Amici would pick up on and go like, Oh, this guy's legit. Like, and me, we, we're so great friends. And that's just kind of like your point of like networking, keep your, keeping your, you know, your, your mind open and accepting of people, uh, not burning bridges just because you never know what's going to lead you. I mean, it led me back to, you know, Matt Pincus and starting trust records. Well, there you segued for me. Um, I don't know that I was going to get there that early, but when, when an in is presented, you should <laughs> jump on it. No, no, no. Pincus, Matt has a background a rather huge, sizable background, accomplished background in music publishing, yes? Yeah. To me, it's interesting that you, having been doing what you've done to pay the bills for the last couple of decades, and him doing that on the level that he's done it, it's interesting to me that trust would happen in the pairing of you two. Now, yeah. that's, well, I, I mean, I can understand a love for something from one's youth and everything else, but there is a very specific set of values and principles that you're applying to it. Let's get into that. Let's get into trust philosophy in a minute. But why don't you give me a little bit of a chronology on how you and Matt came to it and how you set it up? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's so it's such a it's great in a lot of ways. And it kind of the timeline kind of intersects all these things I just talked about with you is as kids when we met, you know, it's no, you know, we were in love with those New York guys. This, you know, we youth of the day and grill biscuits and bold and judge. And Matt played bass in judge. Uh, he's about a year or two younger than me. And so we met back then when judge came out to California, we were always great friends as were you with Purcell and Ray. And, and so we had this camaraderie that you have with these guys because you're sharing this frequency that you feel like no one else is on, but you guys. Right. And Matt and I became friendly then throughout the years. I saw him when I started managing bands, like I was saying, one of those bands was called in a way, which was a orange County band, a great band. And so go on Spotify and look for it. Cause it's fucking great. But the point is, is Matt Pincus and had that a label, called songs and we signed in a way to songs so matt and i worked on that in 2004 2000 around there 2005 we were working a record together for a year and he loved the record and he, he was great to be a partner with on this and he put i could tell he put everything he could into it uh at some point during that he segued that record label into what was came songs publishing uh because the record label it was not making the making the money it needed to make and when he did that publishing company, he signed Pharrell and The Weeknd and Lord, and he blew that company up. About, I would say, five or six years ago, he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm with songs. I would like to do like a charitable wing for punk and hardcore. Hardcore. It's really important to me that as we're moving to digital and streaming, that these guys get their their publishing in order so they collect their streaming because it's pennies, but it's their pennies. And, it's, and I was so weird to me because I'm like what? Like, who fucking cares about these hardcore dudes? <laughs> you know what I mean? But he was sincere about it. And I'm like, he's like, it's like, I'll pay you a little bit, but just let's do it. So we started doing that. And then about a year into it, we kind of realized that there's a real problem with helping these dudes get their publishing because their stuff is not translating to the digital age. At the time, the Chromags wasn't available. Uh, no, your band, No For Answer, Thought Crusade, it's still not available on streaming. That's you know, I mean? conversation. Sure, but like they're, those are records that need to be around. So we just started this conversation, like, how do you get those records? Like, what do you do? Like, what do you do when, you know, for example, Sean Stern and or Mark Stern pass away? They both have, they both pass away. What happens to BYO? Is it just gone? Is it, you know, because that wasn't on Spotify at the time either due to like the uh, Sean's political beliefs in it, which I 
obviously respect. So he did, wasn't putting his stuff on Spotify. But the point is, we started having that conversation. And then about three years ago, I got clipped, fired from the merch gig at like 49 years old, <laughs> put out to pasture. Because <laughs> okay, I okay. And I was like, what am I going to do, man? Because I can't go do merchandise anymore. I'm like 50. Like, I'm just over it. Like, it's I'm burnt out on it. And it's also, I'm past my prime. You know, like, it's hard to find, it's hard to be in that Coachella pop game the older you get in fine talent, like I got lucky with Fanagram run the jewels and Leon bridges. But like, for the most part, I was behind on, on all the up and comers, like, you know, future and, you know, all these dudes, all the hip hop dudes, I was just behind it. I didn't realize I wasn't going to make it in that business. Anyway, I get clipped. Matt reaches out to me around the same time goes, I'm selling songs publishing and I want to take a chunk of money and I want to start a punk rock, hardcore legacy label with you and you run it. And at that point, I'm like, it sounds great. Let's talk about that. And he, his vision, this is, you know, Matt was like the same thing I just said. I'm worried this stuff will not translate into the digital age. And despite what everyone thinks or cares about or whatever their passions are, at some point, it's all going to be digital. Whether we like it or not, that is the game we are all playing. So we can't just hide. We, as hardcore, you know, being in this scene, it's a niche. It's a small market. So like, Got kind of hoarding our our toys by ourselves and not playing with the others out there in streaming world, which he thought was a mistake. And I agreed. So he's like, let's go acquire catalogs. Let's go talk to Sean and Mark Stern. Let's go talk to Lisa Fancher Frontier. We even reached out to Greg again. Like, let's try to do that. And from this, we'll build this label. Um, and that took a little bit of time because we were trying to figure out what that label actually should be. And it's it's still a kind of work in progress. But what we decided on is let's buy 51% ownership into the masters so we can control them and uh, it'll make it administratively easy to pay people fairly. That was another thing. Let's make sure all the artists are paid fairly. Let's make sure accounting's transparent. Uh, but, and most importantly, let's make sure this movie, this music's preserved. So if we control the 51% of the administration, we can always make sure that as trust, you know, wherever it goes after we're done, it's in a space where it lives anyway. Um, but it was hard starting this because as you know, being a hardcore dude yourself, hardcore people are the most non-trusting, suspicious, fucking beaten down animals you'll ever meet. And no one wants, even though they know Matt and I, no mm -hmm. one wants to be the first, no one wants to take that first step. Right. So then I get a call from a guy named Mike Mallory's a manager. He goes, Hey, I wanted to, the circle Turks are looking to relaunch. And they want to talk about merchandise. And I was just, someone mentioned you would be great because you know a lot about merchandise. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go sit with them and talk about merchandise and how to rebrand them. And in that conversation, I realized they had their masters back and we're going to license those records, Group Sex and Wild in the Streets. And I went to Keith Morris and was like, what if we did this? And Keith Morris was like, yes. And once we had Keith, the, the dominoes started falling and now we're on a roll, but that is like, it all kind of, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like to your point, all kind of ties together. Like it's all, it's all there. Well, let me jump in and bite on a couple of things that you said. I'm trying to trying more and more often when I do this to remember that the listener is not listening from between my ears or the guests ears, but they have an outside perspective. Um, there's two things. There's the potential for a red light to go off or for a flag to pop up. When you talk about buying these catalogs yeah. or buying a controlling interest in these catalogs. So I think we should go more into what that means because initially it may just sound like big fish swallow little fish rather than any kind of a humanitarian or benevolent thing. I know that to not be the case, but I think it would be wise to put some flesh on it. And we, you know, we talked a lot about digital right, right now, right? Right. 
But if you were to have me describe trust to a stranger, I'd end up describing a lot of physical media. Yes. A hundred. You're, you are correct. Yeah. So let's go with the uh, first part. The point of buying a master is, is I mean, I don't want to get too edu- you know, elementary on people because I know I'm sure most listeners want to know what a master recording is, but a master is the asset of the recording. That is the recording. So any mm-hmm. album, the master is the actual physical entity of that recording. And obviously, yes, it's a red flag. The reason we started trying to make pitches, first, we, we asked people to donate the masters. Like we kind of had this mm-hmm. philosoph- like this kind of hardcore, like, you know, we're talking about mm-hmm. like everyone just like this for the greater good of the community, everyone donate your masters and we will protect them. And then, you know, everyone's like, fuck off. Like we're not doing that. So then we're like, okay, we're gonna actually have to buy these masters. But the point is, is we decided to only buy 51% and leave the 49% with the other owner where we're buying from, because we felt at least if you're doing that, it's a joint venture. Like there's a reason we have to control it, but in the contracts we're signing, the other half owner of this master has full artistic control, hundred percent. So they dictate their art um, it, to the point where if someone came to us and said, we don't want our stuff to stream ever again, we would honor that request, even though that's not the mm-hmm. mission or label, that's where we're at. And it would say, so it says so in our deals. Um, and the, and, and, and just the point of that is, with all most bands and, and stuff, there's there's members who've been deceased, there's members who are fighting still. And our goal as trust was to come in and clean all that mess up. So, like, look, you just everyone just can report, we'll report to everyone individually, we'll treat everyone as equals, we'll rewrite these deals so the artists are all splitting their shares fairly and stuff. And uh yeah, but it, sure, it's hard. Like, I mean, we haven't got everything we've chased for sure. Like, I've gone after some pretty you know, well-known records and stuff, really hoping to get them. And, and with all my pitch and people been like, yeah, I'm just, I'm not selling my art. And you right. got to respect that. All we can do is keep going. And, and, and um, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. No. And so, the, so let's stick with the first part just for a second, uh, just for a second further. That is the thing. What the deal you just described, you know, we end up using words like control and talking about percent of ownership. What you're actually talking about is a level of c- compensation and transparency that none of us really experienced when we put out our first records. Right. We get paid in vinyl if we got paid at all. We typically self-financed our recordings. And I think these things were true for the generation that you're dealing with. It seems to me that in its muscularity or in its level of financial backing, you're actually able to provide security. It's just through language and through structures that were never part of this when we were young. Oh, yeah, you're correct. And and, and I think, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, all everything you just said is is kind of, that's the mission. And, and the second part of your question, which kind of popped in my head as, we, as you were talking was, yes, yeah, so if you describe trust, you would not describe it as a digital uh, label because it's obviously our, our, we're kind of making our mark with these deluxe reissues that have the booklets and stuff in them. The reason that is, is because when we sat down with Mark and Sean Stern, they just, I, you had Sean on your show, so you know how he is. They just mm-hmm. kind of laughed at us and we're like, like, you know, like, what? Why would we sell our label to you? If you're just going to put it up on Spotify, which we don't believe in. And then with the circle jerks, they had this idea, you know, they wanted to re-release group sex. That was our first release, a 40th anniversary. They wanted to remaster and they wanted to put bonus tracks and they had already done some work with, they had an idea of having like, you know, kind of like an insert of like some anecdotal stuff and some photos. And then that morphed into, wow, we should do like a deluxe package with this booklet. And so when the, and then when group sex came out, everyone it was such a, a hit and people were just raving about the packaging that for seven seconds, the crew 
then I was like, okay, let's do a gateful with a, a you know, with a booklet and seven inch step inside. So, so it just, it kind of morphed into that out of necessity because, and then, and then it all makes sense anyway, because we weren't thinking clearly, we were thinking just a digital only release, but because you don't generate enough revenue to do that, how can you possibly go pay fair value for masters if you're like going to just do it digitally? Because then they would be worth nothing. And these are classic records that we love that obviously are worth something. So we started putting together a financial model around the physical releases and realized, okay, if we can sell X amount of records, that's what those masters are worth. You know, over like a seven-year period of time, that's actually what those masters are worth. And that's where we've gone. And now, now we're kind of, and, and like I said, this, this label is constantly improving and shifting and we're learning and, and, the goal is always still to make sure this is preserved digitally. And that's where we need to be thinking, but keep doing these physical releases. We'll push that further along the track. Hopefully. Let's imagine that there will be at least one person listening to this who has yet to actually hold a trust product in their hands. Okay. I think that's a, a reasonable assumption. I, yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, okay. How's that possible? Well, and I, you know, I have everything they've done or that you've done so far and you've been kind enough since you've been involved with the podcast to keep just sending things down the uh, pipe as if I'm as if I, as if I'm inside the fence, which I do like. <laughs> but for the sake of this podcast and to give some people who have maybe not witnessed your work yet, I'm going to ask you to provide an example by describing in depth the actual product, the re-release of the crew. Well, yeah. So, so I mean, with the crew, that's a B, there's the seven seconds has three records on BYO that are just classics. They have the crew, they have walked together, rock together, they have new wind. So. When we put out the Circle Jerks record, it was like I said, it's a 20 page book. It's anecdotal. So it's got Tony Hawk and Mike Patton, Faith and all these guys, people, people, Chris Robinson, the Black Crows, like people you wouldn't even expect to not know who the Circle Jerks were, to know who the Circle Jerks are, raving about the Circle Jerks. And when we're doing seven seconds, I was like, you know, I don't want to just keep doing this a cookie cutter. Like, I don't want that to be the next thing. Cause then, about, you know, what can we do with seven seconds? And the idea that, you know, that I came up with with, with Kevin was, we're going to use those three BYL releases as gatefold records that act like books. And inside the gatefold record will be a 20 page book, which is an oral history of the band from that takes it through that record. So with the crew, we went and laid it out it's, and, and it has flyers. It has photos you've never seen. It has an oral history with guys like Ian Mackay and Shepard Ferry and Keith Morris and Roger from Agnostic Front all telling the seven second story from 1979 to 1984 when the crew comes out and what'll happen. And so that in itself, and you know, there's colored vinyl, it's remastered. The remastering I, I find is like actually the key to the whole thing, because taking those thin recordings from the eighties and gooding some, putting some low end back into via remastering has done wonders, I think to, to that, to the crew. Okay. Um, Cause if you listen, if you AB the originals, the originals, it was recorded at a place called, Radio Tokyo, which we all know was like the fucking flavor of the day back then, but it was a thin sounding studio and no one thought of the low end. No one did that in the West Coast. They did that maybe more mm -hmm. in the East. But anyway, so the point is, is taking the crew and pushing up Steve Hughes bass and getting Troy's drums a little bigger in the mix. It, it just made a difference to that record. So audio, audio wise, it's fucking fantastic. And then the book has, like I said, all these great things and it's a to be continued story. So this year, 2022 walk together rock together will drop and that'll pick up that story through walk together rock together including the 85 tour and, and you're you know guys that you are in it you, you know you have mm -hmm. some great quotes in that walter schreifels is in that one um lots of people you wouldn't you wouldn't expect are in the walk together rock together story and that's and then when you get to new win that'll kind of continue the story through the 80s and that'll be like almost like a trilogy 
of of that album of, of that band told through those you know three albums that makes sense there is nothing in life not going to the grocery store not buying a car not getting a goddamn punk rock record made that wasn't affected by global issues in the last couple of years yeah. how, how hamstrung have you guys been with the vinyl supply issue it fucking it sucks dude. Like, <laughs> i don't even know how to like this is what's so funny about that is like okay so then after i tell you sort of like after me and matt have like probably just been in the lab way too much trying to figure this out We're like okay it's not just a digital record label it's got to be it's got to have physical products so let's make a record that circle jerks group sex record took three months to make we turned it in we got it back we put it in the stores that was in fall of 2020 mm -hmm. and in since then now it's gone to it takes 12 to 15 months to turn in a record and it's become a nightmare and this is what i will say and uh, having matt pink is as my partner and the co-founder of this saves us because what happens is matt and i can sit there and go like hey man we're not going to put out we need to put out about six records a year at the way we're doing it to, to kind of have a, a record label that's you know, mm -hmm. not in the red, barely in the black. And so we're only able to put out a couple of year because of the pandemic. And, and as I described those records and you've seen them, like the records are, because they're reissues, it's important that, you know, it's quality, not quantity, right? So like, if it takes a little longer to get a record out, it's gotta be right. Watch you get a rock together. We're still working on it because it's just not ready yet. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, and, and it's important to us and to obviously Kevin Seconds that, if we're going to put this out, like it's better that it comes out when it's ready. And so that kind of mentality slows things down as well. But yeah, the, 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 the raw supply shortage due to the pandemic and the logistic issues are a nightmare. And not to mention when you start pressing these records, you're pressing the Czech, Czech Republic, which is cheap and you can, you know, but then their, their costs start going up and then you can't send them by boat anymore because it's so jammed. You have to air freight them. And all of a sudden to make a record in the Czech Republic, it's just about as expensive as is making it down the street if you can do it. So that's another thing. Now, and I, and I, and I think our, the next step in this whole thing, because this really kind of shook us, was uh, we've been exploring options with some other partners to just buy a, a pressing plant, a vinyl pressing plant of a couple presses. And just you'll, have it ourselves. You'll be the. So that's where that's where we're at as a record label, flexing on y'all. Well, no, no, you'll well, no, you'll be well. <laughs> sorry, but you'll be the second aging punk rocker. I, I, you know, I grew up around who's done that. Mark Rainey beat you to the punch. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, you know, and Hartsfield worked in them forever, and yeah, I spent I spent two oh, months yeah. on, and I spent two months on the graveyard shift at Erica. So, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, no, that would be amazing, and yeah, that would solve some of your problems. It is weird to think in those terms, but I, I realize that's probably a possibility. Talking about digital, digital can be a controversial space, and you've mentioned Spotify several times. But are you are you in the other the other digital outlets? Yeah, all of them. Is Spotify dominant? Not as far as what you make financially, but as far as what the streams, you know, what, what, whatever this, however you measure that stuff, you know, but like the way I looked at Spotify mm -hmm. was I, part of the beauty of this label is becoming friends with some of these guys. I become really good friends with Ian Mackay and Ian mm -hmm. Mackay. And I had this talk about Spotify early on because when the Stearns were like, you know, Sean's like, fuck Spotify. Like, why would I put my shit there? It's like, no one makes any money. It's like, and I agree with them. I'm like, yeah, like I get it, dude. But Ian was like, he took the stance of like, I want the music to be everywhere. And right. I don't care about like, it's just like, and so that's kind of 
how we how we looked at it. And like I said earlier, but it's still an artist friendly label always. So if I had an artist who politically couldn't be on a certain streaming platform, like say Amazon, mm-hmm. okay, we pull it. No right. big deal. Well, it's an interesting thing to de- to debate the toxicity or the the potential toxicity of people you share space with, particularly with their employees. And obviously, we're we're munching on the corners of the of the Joe Rogan situation and Spotify. Yeah. And you probably yeah. dreaded the notion that I would I would bring that up in this. My thinking is whether it be the stages that we play on, whether it be the radio stations that our bands have been played on, whether it be some of the bands that have been in the same room with us throughout this whole thing, we've rarely been surrounded by saints or sharing space with exclusively noble people. And Spotify is no different. Now there is a cutoff point there, but for instance, it's the link I use when I'm pushing the podcast because I know it's going to reach the most people. And I feel the content here is important. I would imagine you feel at least somewhat similarly. Oh yeah. I I mean, look, it's really funny about Spotify because like I said, we bought, we, when we, Partnered, finally partnered with BYO. Uh, we were trying to get this stuff onto Spotify in August. Mm-hmm. And it was such a process because it's not just like when you go into TuneCore, you know, DistroKid or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're an independent, you load your stuff that way. It's just automatic. This is a whole different game because you've got to tie in every single revenue stream and all the banking. It's just a mess. So it took four or five months. The day, the day that we finally got BYO on Spotify and made our big publicity announcement and like was all in the press was the same day that Neil Young <laughs> pulled his stuff <laughs> from Spotify, which was the funniest thing. Like Matt and I were dying. We were laughing. We're just like, are you kidding? Like it's, I felt like a Derek Smalls in Spinal Tap when he's coming out of like the cocoon thing and he can't get mm-hmm. out. It finally gets out. And then the show's over. He tries to jump back in, but he's caught. That's how we felt. Right. Like we were here, Spotify, like shit, everyone's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> but we do we just look at it, it's like look man i don't want like like personally outside of a label outside of my you know i, I don't think spotify is a great broker i think it's terrible i think it's a terrible unfair system but i also look at it as a realist and go this is where we're at and the music business the major mute part of the music business all their corruption and their greed and the way that they fucking convoluted the system with their CDs and all this shit came back to bite them in the ass with Spotify and digital because they did not adapt to it. And now their shit's not worth anything like it used Mm -hmm. to be like those days are gone. And in some ways the power has gone back to the artist because the artist who wants to go tour and sell merch and, and do it like a business and stay independent, they actually have a revenue stream. There is a pathway to, to, having a you know a comfortable life as a successful musician independently that never existed before and the record labels are the ones like scrambling around trying to figure out how to make a fucking penny so in some ways that's what you get you know it's an interesting perspective it made me think about 20 other things that i could ramble about but that is not what we are here to do i am curious uh the timeline i know walk together rock together is coming because like you said um i was lucky enough to have a have a, have, have a voice in some of the material that doesn't sound like what I mean. I contributed sound bites. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah. what is the actual timeline? Cause it, it doesn't seem like I'm hearing about it as much. I mean, I remember you couldn't not think about it when Bob Clark passed away, but when yeah. does, when does aggression drop? So this is kind of what happened with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Bob. So we got the crew out and, and, and like we were talking about the pandemic and the issues and stuff. Like we literally had to catch our breath last year Mm-hmm. Because A, we wanted to make sure we had a financial model that worked. So I kind of sat in a lab all summer with Matt's 
accountants that are all brilliant Wall Street guys and hatched out a great business model that we were all happy with. So we kind of hit pause on that stuff. So the crew came out in June. We spent the rest of the year playing catch up and making sure that we were taking the right steps uh, forward into the future that so we, you know, we weren't, uh, we, so the foundation was whole, let's say. And aggression was our next record. I was trying my best to get that done because I had become friends with Bob Clark, the bass player. And I had been going down to, or going up to Oxnard, like, you know, probably once a month. And, 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 you know, it's no secret. Bob was destitute. He was, he was homeless, living in a van, terrible health. Just, you could see the end. Like I could see it. And so I was in a race to get aggression done before Bob passed away. Cause in my mind, obviously it came to fruition. It could have been any day. And mm-hmm. so Seven Seconds Walk to Get Rock to Get kind of got put down as we were trying to get aggression next. We just want to celebrate Bob. We want him to feel great about, mm-hmm. about this record he made. And it's a fucking great record. And I can't wait for it to come out. So anyway, when he died, it just kind of, I just took a break because I just was like, okay, you know, it was still, there were things that were wrong with it. And we just kind of took a break and I put it, we put it down for the rest of the year and picked it back up. Uh, well, I guess picked it back up in December and that'll probably come out in August or September. Like it's just about ready to get turned in. It's been remastered. It sounds great. Uh, it comes with, we partnered with Fred Hammer up in Oxnard because the spirit of the aggression record where it's going to differ from seven seconds and circle jerks is it just celebrates Oxnard and it celebrates mm-hmm. that whole scene around aggression and just this crazy freaking Nardcore Oxnard Silverstrand world that these dudes live in that for some reason has produced a brand of hardcore that's unique to itself. So that takes mm-hmm. on more of a local flavor. It's got like old Oxnard photos in there. It talks to locals about Oxnard and, and aggression. Uh, that's just, that should be out in August. And then Walk to Your Rock Together, it looks like we're going to change the way it's laid out. It's going to be, it's the same layout kind of as the crew, that vibe. But we're going to do some creative things with the, our artist, Brian Walsby, who did the original cover to Walk to Your Rock Together. It'll be restored to that cover. Mm-hmm. And we kind of have this vibe where Brian will create some cartoons within the book as well, almost like a punk magazine vibe uh, that'll work with the oral history. And then it'll be flyers and the photos and, and stuff. And, and, um, and that'll probably realistically be the last record of the year. So this record, Wild in the Streets by the Circle Jersey, just dropped. And we're doing this podcast. It's, you know, February 18th when it dropped. Uh, and so, and then the next one will be Aggression Summer, and then we'll get into Walk to Your Rock together. And after that, we'd like to get to about six releases every year. And I think we can do it because as I mentioned, if we can get our, our hands on this plant uh, with a partner, that'll be dedicated to just our albums. And then we're never worrying about, well, knock on wood. We're, mm-hmm. Hopefully that helps. <laughs> right. Hopefully that helps. Until the next, until the next pandemic. <laughs> so, so the, the one recurring thing so far is the circle jerks and being involved with the circle jerks has been no small undertaking. You've now done two of their releases and they're two treasured, extremely high profile pieces of punk rock history, but in the present tense, those dudes are going out on tour and going out on a big one. And yeah. they just did a hell of a video. Uh, I think very much using your networking and involving people that you love working with in it. Can you tell me a little bit about the last six months of circle jerk ism? Yes, for sure. Um, so this is, I mean, it's how we talked about the, the great thing about doing this record label is because we sit in this kind of unique lane is we're the preservationists of this scene. Like not that we're the guys who should be doing it, but we're going to, we're trying to do it. So we're getting our arms around the whole hardcore scene. We're preserving it. We don't compete with other record labels. Everyone knows is seems to be a fan. They all want to help. 
And what's great about like something launching with the circle jerks is Tony Hawk is a huge fan of the circle jerks. Atiba Jefferson, the photographer and the videographer who we got to get on your show and we'll talk, hopefully that'll happen is a, uh, he's a huge fan of all our bands, your band, seven seconds, like uh, circle jerks. And I just kind of reached out to him in December and was like, we should do a video for wild in the streets, man. Like we, we, we work with some people and one of the people we work with Sam Sigler from youth of the day, uh, he helps us with some branding and marketing. He suggested to us with seven seconds that every release we put out should have a video if they don't already, because we need to, if we're our preservationists, that should be something. So with seven seconds, we shot this young till I die video. Well, it's old footage kind of splashed, spliced together. Mm-hmm. And that lived. So I was like, what are we gonna do for Wild in the Streets? And you know, there's kind of this skateboard tie-in with that because it was in the movie Thrashing that song, and mm-hmm. it just it's got a kind of skateboard anthem. So I just reached out to Atiba Jefferson, who's a famous photographer in the skate world. I mean, he's the guy, and asked him what he thought. And he's, you know, and I said, if you have, if you want to direct a video, we would love to have you do it. And without missing a beat, he goes, I would be honored to do it. I love the circle jerks. Like, I'll get back to you. And I'm like, okay. And so then I kind of go back to the circle jerks. I go, hey, Atiba's going to direct our video. And I was that's cool. What's he going to do? And I'm like, you know, I I don't know, but he's coming with something great, I'm sure. And so he just came back and was just like, this is my vision. It's going to be this old footage of, uh, of them playing, which, and he's like, which is shot in video. And I'm going to reshoot modern skaters and old skaters doing 80 style tricks on vintage boards in video, splice it, make it. And so it, it seems like it's a seamless video from the eighties. Cause all the tricks the skateboarders are doing are, uh, 80 style tricks They're vintage tricks and their boards are all vintage. And I'm thinking like, Oh, that's a great idea. Like, who do you have in mind? It's just like, well, I got Tony Hawk. I got Christian Sawyer. I got Lance Mountain. I got Eric Costin. I got like, and I'm just sitting there going like, what the fuck, dude? And he's just like, and and then, and then the thing I love about that video is we got Steve Olson, who's uh Z, you know, Dogtown Z-Boy skater, one of the originals. And so he's in it. It goes to the 80s skaters. It has Eric Costin in the 90s. And then it gets into these 2000, you know, this, the modern day skaters like Sean Malto and stuff that like, I don't know those guys, but they were all awesome. And yeah. it was just such a feel good. And that was, the, that was literally down the moment where I was just like, oh, this is great. What we're doing is so fucking fun because being at that video shoot was like, all right, this is, this is great. This is way better than trying to send, sign a band on a t-shirt deal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So talking, you know, we talked, we talked overarching philosophy. We talked the actual, you know, physical output of the label. Uh, you just talked about this video with Atiba. What's interesting about the video and with the way you guys get behind the video and with the label itself is you cannot put records out as quickly as you would like to, or as aggressively as you would like to, and are exploring solutions that wouldn't be involved to to just anybody. That's exciting. But you also back energetically other things. You came to me about the podcast, not vice versa. You got, you, you, you yeah. said you wanted to be involved here, but didn't really come with demands or asks that I slow content the I mean the podcasts plural the videos the zine yeah what 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 motivates that in the downtime between records is it is it a need to remain relevant and active is it that there is more to the mission than I'm seeing just in these records I mean I'm curious yeah I mean I think it goes back to your earlier point the pandemic hit so like obviously I'm working like I said I was working on this business plan with some accountants like like that's not all we're doing. And, and there's also that thing is like, as we talk about the digital age and we talk about this time we live in, 
we all know how the role social media plays. We all know that content is king, right? That stupid mm-hmm. saying, like freaking, like it's like so. That's what's ha- so the part of like I said, I work with Sam Sigler, who people don't know this about Sammy is like yes, he's a drummer, but he spent like ten years working for a, a almost like an ad firm. I forget what it, what it was called, but what they did was what he's doing for us. So he has all this great experience with that, and all he kept saying is like we still got to be talking about stuff. We still got to be talking about stuff. We got to be able to have content. We got to be able to, every week to have something on Instagram. And he's not wrong. He's hundred percent right. So we built out a merch kind of look, um, which is obviously easy to do because of my background. And then we had love this idea for a fanzine. Cause we're like, we should do a fanzine and we should do it like grand Royal style where it's just kind of fun. It's got, it's got, it's visually stimulating. Now we work with a younger a graphic artist, a kid named Mike Nucera intentionally because you know, part of the trust idea is if you're in a room with guys our own age, you have a certain aesthetic and a certain vibe. And, and I look at it as like, we got to keep reaching back to the younger generations to help propel this after we're all gone. So this kid, Mike Nucero, who's a street designer and a, a kid in his early, late twenties, he came on to, to do the branding and he kind of came up with the look of the fanzine, which if you look at it, it sits with like these modern day fanzines, these kind of art looking fanzines. It's not mm-hmm. like an old, like maximum rock and roll, right. Or whatever. So, so there's a generation. It's orange. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's our, that's our color. It's going away. We'll, we'll switch it up. We'll switch it up soon. But the point is, is like, but those are the compromises you have to make when you sit in my seat too, of like, and, and then we're just like, you know, it can't always be your vision hundred percent or else it will not work because punk rock and hardcore is all our visions. And the point, you know, for example, your podcast, we loved your podcast or I loved it. And, and I know it had stopped during the pandemic and Sam and I were having a brain storm about content he's like we should do a podcast and we i was like you know who has a good podcast is dan uh we should see if we could get behind it and 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 do some things behind the scenes to help and 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 just have it as a branded podcast and to your point like like you know the thing about doing a label is you can't go to creative and go like hey man we're we're this we're this great label it's so special to all the artists and transparent however for your podcast make sure you don't do this this and this you just can't do it like that's Mm -hmm. not right that goes against the spirit of this music we celebrate so that's why we reached out to you that's why the fans didn't exist we did a movie night up in la with uh um dave markey's movie the slog movie which is was an amazing experience and we'll do another one probably in the summer um we have this tour we with Circle Jerks in seven seconds that we sponsored. Um, and then in the fall, we'll have a, a we will have this like a trust fest, like out here in California mm-hmm. in the very beginning of October. Um, that hopefully one of your bands that I saw is back on the market <laughs> plays. Hint, hint. So, but the point is, but you know what I'm saying? The point is, is all that leads to the thing. And then when Matt and I have these discussions about where the label's going, we just love it because we're like, it's so much if you really do a true punk rock hardcore label, like we're from to your point at the very beginning of the podcast, the DIY ethic, DIY ethic, all of it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, the fanzine's important. Your podcast is important. And what I've told you before, and I sincerely mean is what we love about your podcast is we can't go put out a spit boy record. Right. And we can't put out like, you know, somebody's like you had Doug McKinnon on a couple episodes ago, like, like Doug's been in some great bands, but we can't put his stuff out. And so, but he's mm-hmm. Doug McKinney's part of our scene as, as is, you know, Adrian from Spitboy. And that's important to have a reach where everyone understands like, yes, we're a record label and we're putting out circle jerks in seven seconds and that kind of stuff. But the whole scene's important. And that's what made it great anyway. And why we kind of got into, I think as kids is because we all felt on even, on, on even playing field with each other. It was all this, we we're all the same. Like if you had a fanzine or you're a freaking photographer, you were a kid at a show or you're singing a show, it all felt like you were just part of the same crew. I mean, within the framework of the podcast, one of the things that 
we made clear to each other early on is if there is a journalist, an investigative journalist to be spoken to, or a photographer, or a visual artist that needs to be on the table every bit as musicians, as much as musicians, I'd like people to know that trust didn't blink on that front. And that to me goes to the idea that punk rock philosophy extends beyond just the music. So well, and, and also Dan Mahoney. And also yeah. Dan Mahoney, you do not seem like a guy that would take us going like, hey man, you can't interview these people. You don't seem like the type of dude who's gonna be like, okay, trust, let me make some compromise in my own integrity for the benefit of you guys. So no, no, you know each other that you're, way. You're absolutely right. I actually kind of wondered if you were out of your mind early on, but I think like, it's worked yeah, out. Like, I think it's worked out pretty well. But Dan Dan's gonna sign the contract, guys. He's not gonna yeah. do these certain things. <laughs> um to that end, I'm speaking into a mic you paid for. So, yes, I'm a whore. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, Joe, there's not a lot else I wanted to dig down on. Um, I would I would tell you that it's interesting. I think you trust is in a position to walk a very precarious rope and that I think the motivations are noble and that I think the preservationist thing is real. And I think there's something interesting about people who are closer to mainstream music, understanding what needs are real and being willing to brave the judgment of people whose mindset and understanding of music is rooted in something that happened 30 years ago. You know, like anytime my eyebrow is, is cocked at a decision that's being made, it's typically an out of date perspective that's cocking my eyebrow. Um, do you experience much pushback like that? Do you experience much cynicism? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, yeah. look, I mean, I'm a cynical human by nature. So even when I was cynical at some of the stuff at the beginning. And, and like I said, the more I go into this and the, you know, the more days that go by, it just becomes, I've just become more and more kind of entrenched in it and appreciative of it. But to your point, yeah, like there, of course there's pushback. And, and I, I think that's kind of our pitch. I, you know, you go to these guys and you go like, look, that's why we have a guy like Mike Nucero. And that's why we have like, did, you know, we were using some young kids to do digital marketing for us. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why we reach out to guys like Atiba Jefferson, who's, not that young, but he's young, a lot younger than us. I couldn't have done trust records in my twenties. I mean, well, obviously we wouldn't be archiving music that early, but we couldn't have done it there because there's a bigger ego involved. Then there's a more like, this is my world. You haven't beaten down. Like, you know, I start off the story telling you like, I got a music basically because of a divorce. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I gone through some shit, you know, I've lost a parent, you, you know, you've lost a parent, you've lost this. I mean, we go through shit and that makes us a little bit softer, obviously a lot wiser and a little bit, at least in my case, open, minded to other people and it's because it doesn't you know like it's you just can't make it on your own no matter how badass you are people have to help you people reach out if it whether it be ted gardner or walter schreifels or anyone even you when we're going gambling like you know what i mean like <laughs> guys reach out and like and and you just keep those you keep that with you so like doing this record label now with say 30 years of that experience behind me it's way easier because I can see that. I, I know that I don't have the secret sauce. I, I know at 51 years old, like I don't even, I came from a merchandising space where I was deep in it for 20 years. I don't even think about designing a t-shirt for one of these bands because in my mind, if I design a seven seconds t-shirt, it's going to look like seven seconds walk together, rock together, which is a great piece of art. But does a kid who's in his twenties and skateboards and might be interested in this type of music or this, at least this kind of spirit of the people who made it, would he wear that or he wear something, someone who thinks like him designs. So that thinking, the aesthetics, all that stuff, it kind of can bum people out because they're like, you know, like we're not punk rock bowling and nothing against punk rock bowling. Obviously we're part of the Stearns. I love those dudes. And I think punk rock bowling is a beautiful thing, but it sits in it. It sits in a state you would expect it to sit in 
which is like, this is a, this is a festival for punk rockers who are freaking, you know, like black t-shirts, tattoo dudes and all that. Well, we're looking at it more of like, I don't know how you would say it. Like we're looking at to put our arms, we're hoping to open up the aperture a lot more and try to put our arms around a younger culture, whether they come along or not. I don't know, but that's the goal because I could sell records to dude my age all day long, but can I sell records? Can we sell records or get kids interested in music who are in their twenties? Uh, because if we don't, once we're gone, it does die on the vine, no matter what, you know what I mean? It takes someone to, you know, it took someone to find Robert Johnson for rock and roll to really start. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's how we look at it. Like we got to keep engaging the youth and bringing them up with us and listening to their ideas and executing their visions for this record label, because that's where it's got to go. Otherwise it's just like a fucking, I'm just in my room making seven inches. Right. Like I, I would have right. when I was in high school. And what's the point of that? Listen, aesthetics and presentation is a whole other uh, debater conversation. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that could, you know, that could kill a whole nother episode. And that I think is an interesting topic to have. But what I will tell you, Joe, is this conversation, like most of them, and that's not to lump people together. I just feel very lucky, the people that I'm exposed to in this po in the, this podcast. This conversation genuinely exceeded my expectations. You and I talk about the label all the time, but I still learned things from what you had to say tonight. So thanks for that. Yeah, dude, and, th and thank you for helping. And, and like I said, like we just love having your podcast like on part of our network because it's important. And like it or not, everyone, we're part of the same tribe. <laughs> we're stuck with each other. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.